Hey, maybe I'll open up the comic. Maybe that would help. Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we are reading through all of the webcomic Check Please to look at it in both a strip-by-strip and an overarching basis to talk about what the fuck is even happening in this comic. Today, we're looking at comic number 1.13, The Closet Story, Roman numeral one. I'm Secret OMG who's with me to talk about the first installment of The Closet Story. I'm Tomato. Hey, Tomato. How are you? Oh, losing it. You know, constantly thinking of ridiculous and unsightly things. I was under the impression that you had recently gotten it back. How are you? I'll be okay in about a week. Yeah, so just announcements at the top here. Um, We're in a, a... kind of kooky finals period right now. So episodes have been posting a little scattershot. I hope by the time that this episode is up, we're back on the ball with our Wednesday and Sunday schedule. But I just wanted to issue a bit of a, an apology for having been a little loosey-goosey with our, with our episodes over the past several weeks while we try to wrap up the 2019-2020 uh, academic year on both sides of your, of your Check This Pleased crew. Also, the trackpad on my computer has basically broken to the point where it's like really hard to edit sound files. I have purchased a mouse for maybe the first time in like 20 years. So um, hopefully I should be able to do that again pretty soon. Also, as we are recording this episode, we are planning to put up a poll asking people what episode they'd like us to do in the break in between freshman year semester one and semester two. So if you're listening to this, check out that poll and tell us what special content you'd like to see us do for a little, a little fun break between December and January 2013 in the Check Please universe. Anyway, like I said, today we're talking about 1.13, the closet story number one. This was originally posted on December 27th, 2013, and there is a blog post, and uh, I forget which of us is supposed to be summarizing this one. Yeah, I do too, but I can do it. We open with Biddy looking worried in his dorm room talking about why he wanted to come to Samwell, and that's because it was ranked as the number one most LGBTQ-friendly campus in America by U.S. News and World Report uh, for the last three years. He says, quote, I'm from a small town in Georgia, and it's the South, and my dad's the coach of the high school's football team, so I didn't really have a lot of room to be myself. So I thought I could do that here, even if I was on the hockey team. The only thing is, I kind of waited all fall semester to actually come out to my teammates. Oops. And we cut to the main characters thus far, Jack, Shitty, Biddy, Ransom, and Holster, walking through the quad, talking about one of, I think, Ransom's hookups. And then, well, Ransom and Holster are kind of teasing each other about about a previous hookup. They've both hooked up with this person, which I forgot since I read this um, half an hour ago. Uh, And then 
As we keep going, it turns out that they're talking about the Winter Screw, which is a freshman year dance based on a real dance at Yale. And they realize that they have not gotten a Winter Screw date for Biddy. They immediately, they being Holster and Ransom, kind of go around Biddy's shoulders and start talking about how that they are very well acquainted with Samuel's female population, if you know what I mean, and I do mean sexually. They even found a Jack for Jack, quote, the pickiest man alive, end quote, Zimmerman, to which Jack takes offense. Uh, they tease shitty. And finally they say, so come on, Bits, what's your type? And we then cut back to Biddy's vlog where he has crossed his arms and is sort of looking uh, frustratedly down as he says men and then we cut back to the quad where Biddy is backing away from this group of his friends and saying haha oh dear uh, I totally forgot that I left a pie baking in the library and then we are left with Jack and Shitty Jack says the sad thing is I can tell he's lying not because of the library part but because he'd never leave a pie unattended and then Ransom and Holster are talking about who Biddy likes they decide that Biddy likes girls who can bake and Shitty says, you guys are idiots. And that's the strip. I'm regretting that I didn't summarize this one because it's occurred to me that the next one is basically just like an extended monologue that's no fun to summarize. I will, I will make one correction, which is that it's holster has been screwed by being set up with Esther Shapiro for the dance. Holster says you're screwing me with Esther Shapiro. And then it's Ransom who says, you hooked up with her last weekend. And then Holster says, yeah, and you guys made fun of me for 72 hours afterward. So it's, it's only Holster has hooked up with Esther Shapiro and he's going to be going to the dance with her. Thank you. I knew that when I read this an hour ago or whatever, and then forgot. Super not important. We'll never meet Esther Shapiro. She's not anybody. Yeah, well, we started by with an outline as we normally do. And you've, you've said at the top of our outline, and we also talked about this, that maybe we should kind of hold off on coming out discourse until the end of this arc, because it's a pretty big topic and there's a lot of really complicated stuff to think about. So we will talk about it and we will kind of talk about coming out and identity in this comic. And we'll probably touch on it throughout this episode, but we're not going to kind of dive into the whole shebang of coming out off the top. We'll get there, but not quite yet. What's interesting about these two comics that close out the end of Biddy's first semester, sort of, is that the sort of coming out discourse naturally rolls into the next episode. So this episode, part one, is basically like a setup, and then the next episode is where it actually happens. So some questions about the role of coming up within the comic are going to end up getting raised as part of this conversation. But I feel like the place to sort of naturally have that discussion is going to be toward the end of this episode, carrying over into the next episode. So just for organization's sake, we're going to try to load the front end of this episode with kind of plot and character stuff and then move into the kind of wider ranging conversation about queer stuff more toward the end. But so the first thing that kind of crops up in terms of like character details is this stuff about old Esther Shapiro. And I don't think this is like problematic necessarily or that it's like ill-intended but I do think it's really interesting that this like very obviously Jewish woman is somebody we never meet and she's basically being described as hideous as a punchline 
And then we never end up having like a Jewish woman character in the comic and Holster is never actually like revealed to be Jewish in the text of the comic. And we've talked a little bit about religion. It's not really like a big plot thread in this comic. I don't think this is like an issue to make a lot out of. I'm just sort of noting it because it was interesting to me. It's something that crossed my mind while I was rereading. I'm not, like, offended. It's just interesting that it happens to be this one character who's Esther Shapiro who ends up in this particular position. Something else is, I have a real uh, suspicion that the real-life chirps that these guys would be making about Esther Shapiro would be a lot meaner, a lot crueler, and a lot more pointed, and probably a lot more clever as well. So, like, the jokes they're making here, basically calling her ugly, are like, oh, lol, she has an eye patch. I think she had a rash shaped like Ellen DeGeneres. Those are very obviously, like, inoffensive, offensive jokes that are being made up as placeholders for, like, what bros would actually say. And I suspect what they would actually say would be mean enough that Ngozi probably doesn't want to put it in the comic. Yeah. I also think that. I'm also interested in this rash shaped like Ellen DeGeneres, mostly because what does that mean? How does a rash look like a person? But sure, also fine, whatever. And just because, again, I don't think this is like particularly intentional by any means, especially because Ellen was like fairly beloved as a talk show host or whatever at this time. But I think it's interesting that because this arc is about coming out, that of course, they pick a person whose career was entirely derailed by coming out in the late 90s. And that was like a really interesting media milestone and sort of like mainstream conversations about coming out. It's just interesting that, again, it's fine, whatever. But it's like interesting to note that that's who they compare this rash to. Also, you shouldn't make fun of someone with an eye patch. Come on, man. What's interesting is that the insults about this woman have been toned down to a point where they're like absurd to the point of inoffensive but the text is still effectively these guys making fun of holster for having sex with a woman they think is ugly which is probably pretty true of hockey players but it's not so great not that i think that oh holster really loves her we don't really hear of Esther shapiro ever again so i don't think it's like they're deeply hurting his feelings It's just generally pretty, like, sexist behavior to talk about women this way, conceptualize them as sex objects, base their perceptions of them solely on whether or not they meet some sort of arbitrary standard of hotness. Obviously, having, like, an eye patch and a skin disorder makes somebody ugly, you know. But in real life, I'm pretty sure they'd be calling her much meaner things. Oh, yeah, right. This is the sitcom sort of toned down version of the horrible things that someone would say. But I... I only think it matters because of, as usual, the kind of way that people start engaging with this comic as unpacking toxic masculinity. We've talked about it before. We don't need to necessarily go deeply into it right now because there's so much else to talk about, but I do think it's worth just sort of touching on. It's like, here's the thing. If Check Please actually developed its side characters out to a point where Holster could have a little C-plot about his on-again, off-again comedy romance with Esther Shapiro, maybe this would be the building blocks of something really funny. There are lots and lots of things that can go wrong between, like, a man and a woman that have nothing to do with, like, devaluing the woman. 
But that's not what's happening here. It's just sort of disposable one-off jokes about how this chick is fugly, but mm-hmm. Holster fucked her. So they're going to make him go to a dance with her to sort of laugh about how he had sex with an ugly girl. Right. Um, so speaking of the dance, it's apparently based on a real thing at Yale. You sent me an article about this and I hated it. It made me very happy. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it is apparently a real thing at Yale. It's, it's formerly called the Freshman Screw. Apparently they've now renamed it the First Year Formal. It happens in February, I guess, at Yale, and not in December. So some liberties taken for the sake of check, please. However, yeah, it basically is the case that there's this dance every February in Yale where you quote-unquote screw your friends by matching them up with somebody who they are not going to get along with at a dance. And the flip side of that is if you do get along, then you go home and you like bang them. So the sort of screw is like a double entendre. Either your friends are kind to you and they like hook you up with your crush and this is like the push you need to like get into bed or they screw you by hooking you up with somebody like Esther Shapiro and you have like a really bad time. When I was thinking about this, I guess it's kind of like a sexy white elephant if you're familiar with that kind of party where it's like you all sit in a circle and you try to like give away some crap you don't want and some people are nice and they bring something that's like maybe okay and some people are just assholes and they're like here's a rotten albacore from my refrigerator and you all sort of do like it not it with who gets what gift in the gift exchange it feels kind of like that like a similar sort of experience we didn't have anything like this at my college i've never been in a situation like this it just feels like really fucking awkward I also think something that the fandom kind of like widely doesn't understand is that the context is that your friends or roommates are the people who pick your date for you. And I think we'll get a little bit more into this when we talk about comic uh, 14.5 in a a couple of episodes where we actually see the winter screw. But this is not a situation where you are choosing who you want to go with. This is a situation where other people are telling you who to go with. So you don't really have a lot of autonomy here. Something that I thought was interesting in this regard is that uh, they have picked a date for Jack. Holster calls Jack the pickiest man alive. And then Jack kind of objects to that. To me, this is like a little bit contradictory with the alternate view that Jack is like wheeling tons of chicks or like quote unquote getting sucked off by another Zimmerman puck bunny or whatever which is also vocalized by Holster so it seems kind of like Jack is having tons of sex with lots of women they think but also he's the pickiest man alive I don't know that that necessarily adds up it does seem like the kind of cognitively dissonant but oblivious thing that I might expect from comic relief characters though, right? And, and it, it, it's, I don't know that it's supposed to come from, not that Holster's just comic relief, but he and, he and Ransom are kind of acting as comic relief right now for me in this strip. So the kind of like one-liner quality of their conversation is not necessarily meant to be like reliable characterization. I also wonder if there's, if there's not an idea that um, the winter screw is not just casual hookup, 
So maybe there's this concept that Jack's like screwing, you know, however many people when it's not the winter screw, but then when he actually has to spend time with someone, he's very picky, which I mean, I think there's something to be read into there if you wanted to write or examine how Jack is navigating not really dating, not being very open about his sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. You can read into it and kind of play around in that space. I, I just don't think it's clear in the actual text. I, I could see how someone who's sort of like not paying close attention to someone and sort of just like taking them at their word or sort of making assumptions about them could hold these two things to be true about someone. Why do you think Jack objects to being called picky? I don't know that I have a strong answer. Part of me thinks he's just sort of like, don't make fun of me as a, as a knee-jerk reaction. I guess also if you, I mean, it depends on how you read his sexuality. Certainly we know, we don't know what he identifies as because he never uses a word to describe his sexuality. If you read him as like gay or leaning more towards same gender attraction, Pickiness could be a sign that he's not wheeling chicks all the time, which could be sort of like a dangerous thing. I'm not sure. What do you think? I don't know. I've never really thought about this before. My impression is actually that Jack doesn't really date a lot of women or a lot of anybody. He seems fairly single-mindedly focused on hockey. I think he's the kind of guy who goes along with whatever is happening. So if what everybody's doing now is going to the winter screw, he'll let them pick out a date for him and he'll go to the dance. But as we'll see, he doesn't screw the person he goes to the dance with. So I think for him it's probably more about just like following along and conforming, which is a big thing for Jack. He loves to conform. I don't know. I mean, it's funny to imagine, you know, Ransom and Holster being like, what about this chick? What about this chick? What about this chick? And Jack's just being like, no, 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 no. And they're like, what about this chick? And he's just like, fine. But I don't know. It's, it's interesting that he would interject with, hey, don't call me picky or whatever. There is something about that sort of like, oh, so-and-so is picky language. Like, oh, I'm not dating women because I'm picky. I'm very picky about my, about my men or whatever. And then it's like, well, what you mean is you're picking not to go out with men or something like that. There is a kind of coded language around that. But I don't trust this language, this like comic to be that intentional about its language. I don't think that it's that intentional. I do think that we can read into this brief literary theory grounding for just two seconds, Mikhail Bakhtin's heteroglossia. Let's move on. Just because it's not intentional, I mean, I know that you know this already, obviously, right? But just because it's not intentional doesn't mean that it's not borrowing from sort of cultural coding. I think that you're probably right. I don't think it's necessarily like that thoughtful in the writing, but I think we can still look at it and kind of examine it. We get a mention that Shitty is holding out for Lardo. I think this is the first time Lardo's been mentioned. Obviously, we know who Lardo is. We talked about Lardo when we talked about the introduction of Suzanne Biddle a few comics back. So we're not pretending Lardo doesn't exist yet. But all right, the comic is sewing in that there's another character coming, although it also doesn't dwell on it. It it does set up that, you know, shitty Lardo is kind of like a thing that's going to be teased. But at this point, literally nothing about Lardo is said other than that shitty is holding out for whatever Lardo may or may not be. I don't remember picking up on this when I first read it. I think I was like, okay, whatever. It's some chirping. Let's move on, you know? 
Well, here's the thing. If you're, if you're just reading this, if you're just, you know, flipping through this on the first read, why would you pick up on this mention of Lardo? Like who or what is that? Whatever. Like there's so many more interesting and more important things happening in this particular strip. And it's all sort of overshadowed by a much larger moment for shitty in the next comic. So why would you get stuck on this? This is a little detail that really it's only like rereading brings to the fore because you're like, oh, oh, all right. I see she's being mentioned here. But we'll talk about Lardo when we get to Lardo. I'm really interested in this panel of what's your type. You mentioned something. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about it, but about the kind of structure of the panel. One of the very first meta posts I ever made about Check Please and I made it even before I was using my Camellia blog, so it's on my main uh, secret OMG blog, is that the structure of this panel is built around the answer to the question, what's your type, being framed as Jack in the middle of, of the page. So effectively, really carefully and effectively, but unbeknownst to the reader at this point, the answer to the question, what's your type, is in the middle of the panel. It's what's your type, and then the eye goes down to Jack staring at Biddy slash the reader. It's really interesting. It's really well done. It's, it's a really well-constructed panel of this comic. This is one of the really earliest things that impressed me about Check, Please. I talk constantly about Ngozi being a really effective visual storyteller. And I'm going to complain about a lot of things about this comic. Like, even in this particular strip, I have a huge amount of things that I think are really stupid and really dumb. Like, I already have with Astro Shapiro. The horse is out of the gate or whatever. However, the way that everything in this panel is drawing the reader's eye toward Jack Zimmerman, who is standing underneath the question, what's your type? And the reader is put into Biddy's position so that Biddy and Jack almost are like locking eyes in the panel. The branches of the tree are like centering the viewer's eyes toward the sort of center of the panel where Jack is positioned. Shitty is a little off center. Jack is right where your eye line goes. At, his eyes are like at the apex of the diamond that is formed by Ransom and Holster. It's just a really, really nicely constructed panel of this comic that I think you almost certainly do not catch unless you are already done reading through the first two years of the comic and going back and really thinking about how the thing is visually built. It's also really interesting to uh, think about what Jack, and maybe to a lesser extent Shitty, but mostly Jack is thinking with the look on his face, staring back at Biddy in this panel. You can only wonder. I definitely didn't catch it my first read around. And I think I mentioned before on this podcast that the first read around, I like fully did not believe that Jack and Biddy were going to fall in love, even though they clearly were. I'm also not a particularly adept visual reader. So actually hearing you talk about this stuff is really interesting to me because I feel like I'm not particularly skilled at reading images, even though I appreciate how Ngozi builds images. So I definitely did not notice this the first time around. I think looking at Jack's reaction in this series of panels is really interesting given what we learn about his history 
And I'm curious, I mean, we can talk about it as we go through the panels, but I'm really curious how you read him at this time. I'm trying to remember how I read him at this time, but I'm really curious also about, because you came into the comic a bit later than I did. Well, let's go to my other journal and let's look up what I said. On my very first read, no, I wasn't aware immediately the first time that I saw this panel that this was what was being communicated. I had to reread the comic a couple times and really think about what happened later in relation to this particular moment to have this mean something. Here's what I said on June 9th, 2016. So a couple months after I first read this. Biddy is looking at Jack and Jack is staring back at Biddy. Probably because he wants to hear what Biddy is going to say to this. I mean, Shitty's looking back at Biddy too, but it's Jack you're supposed to zero in on. I say this partly with the comfort of hindsight in context that the comic later reveals. But also, Shitty isn't turned quite as frontally toward Biddy, so his face is partly obscured. He's also farther away and or more fully obscured by Holster's shoulder than Jack is by Ransom's. It's planned this way to make Jack's frontal stare the closest thing to a center of the panel. I don't think this is necessarily something that someone reading this comic when it was originally posted would have or should have picked up on necessarily, but it's clear on rereading. Considering the interaction Biddy and Jack have immediately had before this comic is Jack being a bitch to him, I don't think the implication is that Biddy is looking at Jack specifically because he likes Jack or even that he's thinking about being attracted to Jack's type. Textually, it's more that he's already fixated on Jack because of Jack's melodramatic sundere BS, so he cares about what Jack thinks of him. Maybe he can even tell that Jack is waiting to hear what he has to say. He knows Shitty will be understanding forgiving since he comes out to Shitty in the next comic. Ransom and Holster are obtuse blockheads, and I can't think of any instance in the comic where Biddy cares what they think. Maybe it's implied here that Biddy freaks out and runs away because he doesn't want to answer the question or lie in front of Jack, but that might be reading a bit too deeply into it. Metatextually, though, the comic is set around the question, what is Biddy's type? And everything about how the scene is laid out directs the reader's attention to the answer. I didn't really say anything that I haven't already said here. But yeah, I mean, I read this comic, didn't think much of this particular panel the first time I read the comic. I don't think you would unless you already know what happens between Jack and Biddy. I reread the comic multiple times in my first couple years of being, my first couple months of being obsessed with it because I wanted to know more about the characters and I wanted to start writing fic and I just wanted to immerse myself in the story the way that you do when you're first getting into a canon. So... I looked at this enough that it occurred to me that this was structured to draw the reader's attention to Jack. Man, I don't know that Ngozi really had a plan for what Jack was necessarily thinking, looking back at Biddy. But you get the impression that he wants to hear what Biddy has to say. And if you think about, you know, where Jack is coming from, he's into guys, he's had relationships with guys... He probably knows Biddy is gay. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. He's probably interested to hear what Biddy's answer is. It's like, I would say the look on his face is not neutral. Yeah, I can't totally read it though. 
It, I, maybe intent. Maybe that's how I would characterize that face. I want to say maybe like a little mournful. Like he's, his mouth is like slightly downturned. I think you could read it as anxious as well. But I think this is, we talked about this, I think in our last strip, that she's pretty good at kind of making these complicated facial expressions. I think this is one of those times you can read multiple things into that facial expression and they all are interesting. I just wanted to point out how different his face is from sort of like the friendliness of Ransom and Holster's kind of like bro-y, I don't know, he's doing something with his eyebrows, it's kind of funny. And then Shitty kind of has this expectant or, uh, I don't know how to characterize that, but it's not... It's not like Jack's face. It's more open. His eyebrows are up. He looks kind of like surprised, but also maybe a little nervous, but not in the same way. Whereas Jack seems more intent. His anxiety is in a different direction. The brim of Jack's hat causes a shadow to fall on his face that particularly mirrors the sort of downturned, almost sad look that his eyes can evoke. So it's intensified by the way that that particular shadow line is falling across his downturned, droopy eyes. It's just a really smart panel. I don't know. It's great. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm constantly saying she's a really smart visual storyteller. And this is what I'm talking about. And there are loads and loads of panels like this and strips like this in the comic where you're just like, oh, if only she was a better writer because she absolutely understands how to structure things to get her drawings to tell the story. It's literally what she's doing here. It's just that like she can't carry this plot through the rest of the comic in an effective way through just like her writing skills. That's the problem with Check, Please. I think it's a combination of that and its unexpected reaction. Um, yeah. I'm really curious to see kind of how, how well, because, because I think her writing was impacted by that. And again, that's something we can get to like at a later time. But when you hear her talk about her, like the, screen, the screenplay that she wrote, I don't think that that seems like it had a particularly happy storyline or ending. I don't know that it was good. I can't speak for its pacing and so on. But I think that we get these inklings of interesting pacing and these inklings of interesting characterization up to a certain point. So I don't think she's an especially skilled writer in the sense of her language is not anything mind-blowing and her pacing, even before that's a little, I think you can kind of poke at it. But I'm really curious what she'll do with the skills that she does have, which are which are significant in a project that doesn't have the same kind of internet interactivity. I don't know if I'm interested enough to actually like pursue and follow her work. I don't know. We'll have to see. But I think it might be interesting to at some point examine later work and this comic when that is possible. If we get any in the time that we're recording this podcast, sure. Oh, sure. I might just do it for myself. So the answer that Biddy gives to the question, what's your type, is men. This is one of these things that people cite as like an iconic Q-U-E, check please moments. People think it's funny and it's certainly very impactful. I do think it's um, funny and cute. However, it's also a little weird because it's Biddy commenting outside of the narrative to his vlog audience on a real event that he's living through, like in real time during the comic, 
as if it's a replay of zone life. And you can almost like sense the sort of like filmic kind of visual language that's being pulled on in this moment. However, it's also like fourth wall breaking in a kind of weird way that when you break it down, it doesn't really like make sense. I think the way that I always read this moment was that he was recounting what happened. And this is him like after repeating to his audience the question that Ransom and Holster ask, he then answers it to his blog audience. But that's not actually anywhere in the text. That's just sort of like the reason that I made up as I read, right? Because otherwise, you're right, it doesn't really make sense. I think there's something kind of interesting about this in terms of its filmic qualities. It's in conversation with reality TV and those sort of talking heads moments where you see the action and then someone comments on it, presumably after it happens, but they always comment on it in the present tense as if it's happening right now, which I just think is kind of like an interesting structural choice. I don't know that I have more to say about it. Or maybe it's kind of like a, like an arrested development style. You know, somebody says like, you know, I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And then Ron Howard says, she did not. I think it's effective. I like it. It's fun. But it's definitely structuring something that can't actually happen or doesn't actually stand up to scrutiny. I do think it's possible that B is narratively recounting what happened to him, but then he wouldn't be commenting on it in the same way. The way you tell the story is not saying, and then Ransom said to me, what's your type? Men. It doesn't really have the same sort of impact because Ransom's not there. It would be more like, and then Ransom said to me, what's your type? Well, if you're watching this vlog, you know the answer is men or something. It's like narratively he wouldn't necessarily react that way to like something that he was reporting. I would agree with that mostly, except that I watched a lot of vlogs in my day and this isn't so much an editing style anymore because things have gotten a lot slicker. Oh, you think and he's like, you think he's like splicing it in? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is like, what if it's one of those, you sit over here, you take a video, you sit over here, you take a video and then you kind of splice them together where you recreate this conversation I could see that maybe I could I could see that potentially happening we're like breaking this down much more than probably like was thought about like in structuring this oh yeah oh I I don't I mean I think this is like reading into what's happening to make sense of it rather than a purposeful decision on the part of the author I think I think for the narrative structure right if you're just kind of skimming over this or just reading it without deep diving. It's just a funny contrapunctual moment where the the flow of the comic is skipping along and then you have Biddy kind of inserting his commentary in a particular way. I don't think it's meant to be anything more than that, but I, I do think it's worth asking since we're examining the structure, how could, how would this make sense? I also think it's really interesting because this is the first, this is like one of the first times we see him not just explaining what happened, but questioning it or pushing on it or sort of like changing the narrative in some way through the, the conceit of the vlog rather than just summarizing through the vlog. I actually can't call to mind another instance where he does do this. I guess he doesn't do this, but I think he, but he does comment on things with the vlog. Like you'll have that square overlay of like, and then blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, but I think a lot of the time that's more sort of like general than direct. When he's doing that sort of that like square narration overlay, in my memory, it's always very general where he's talking about, you know, communication is really important. It's about making the time. I talk to my partner. We have good communication. And then it's like obliquely relevant to the action that's happening on screen rather than, you know, Jack saying something like, I'm a top, and then Biddy cuts in with like, uh-huh, or like, whatever. Like, <laughs> it's not that level of response, like, you know, an Arrested Development style narrator where Biddy is just like, definitely that's not what happens, or whatever. You're right, and someone should write that fic, please. Well, I mean, part of, I mean, ugh, I, we don't even have this in our outline for this episode, and I think it's going to get, we're going to start really pushing the boundaries of how long this episode can be if we start talking about this. But this becomes, is the narration that we get in the sort of real-time exposition segments, like, you know, not Biddy's vlog, but like, you know, the part where they're walking down the street, is that coming to us through Biddy's POV as well? Is that filtered through Biddy's experience? Because if it is, then why would Biddy need to interject into his own life experience? I mean, I would argue like actually that the POV is mostly attached to Biddy, but it sort of like shifts in and out from his perspective. And we can kind of examine that as we go through. I think in this particular strip, because there's a point where the, the sort of like quote unquote camera places you in exactly the same place as Biddy, that there's, as the four characters look back at him, I think there's a implicit suggestion that the POV is attached to Biddy. And I think that Biddy's creation of himself and the versions of himself who show up in different places, like the Biddy who we see on the vlog is not the same as the Biddy we see. This strip is a perfect example of that. Like the Biddy on the vlog is not honest about the same things in the same way as the Biddy with these characters. I think that shifts over the course of the comic, but I think we can kind of trace how he's different in different places and why that might be the case. But I think that Biddy's construction of himself is actually a huge part of the comic. I don't think it's purposeful at all, really, but that's something that I'm really interested in. And I think that this is an example of that creation of himself in two separate spaces. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I guess all I would say to sort of sum up my loose feelings on this, which I'm sure we will return to, is that Throughout this first semester, I'm getting the sense that Biddy is structuring himself as a sort of oppositional force to like what's happening in his own life. Do I want to stay on the team? Jack is an asshole. Men, etc. He's like reacting to what's happening around him. But then later on in the comic, he's more of like a commentator reflecting on his experience in these sort of general broad strokes. He's like, I don't know, he's giving like platitudes a lot of the time about like general trends in his life. That's really interesting to me, particularly because those platitudes happen because he can't out himself or his partner. So he kind of like goes into this more general sense. I mean, certainly before that, but definitely by the time he's talking about like my partner and I, blah, blah, blah. The reason he's not naming the partners is because of the demands of sort of like NHL closet them or whatever and beyond that but you know what I mean 
So I'm curious how we can kind of view Biddy as an agent then, because this is, I'm, I'm holding too many things in my brain at once. And I don't have a coherent thought about them necessarily, but there's something interesting here to me about the fact that like things are happening to Biddy. He's reacting to them. He uses the vlog as a space to react to them and sort of like push against them. At some point he stops pushing against things, but also everything starts going his way. And so what does that mean for his agency in the world of the comic? Obviously he's fictional. He doesn't actually have agency, but in the comic world, he has some kind of agency presumably. So I think it's just worth putting a pin in that or something. Cause there's something kind of interesting happening there that I don't have an answer to yet that I am curious about. So what about Jack's line about how he can tell Biddy is lying? Not because of the thing about the library, but because he wouldn't leave a pie unattended. Number one, I feel like the way this line is written, it might just be incidental. It sounds very like French-Canadian debate. Like the cadence of how this line is delivered sounds like somebody who's like translating what they want to say into English. Second of all, why wouldn't Biddy leave a pie unattended? Pies take a while to bake because they need to boil. You need to like activate the thickening agent in the pie, which takes at least 40 minutes and sometimes closer to an hour or more. So uh, why wouldn't you leave a pie unattended for like half an hour or whatever? Maybe Biddy was scarred by the felonious acts of the first strip. Whatever. But he means in the oven, right? Like he says he left a pie baking. I guess so. I mean, I don't, I think this is just like one of those, it has the cadence of a joke, but like it wasn't fully thought out. Perhaps more interesting than that is, um, I presume at least, that Jack would have some insight into the fact that Biddy is gay. I was thinking about this, I started thinking to myself like, this comic would never do something as pedestrian as implying that Jack has gaydar and would like know that Biddy was gay. But like he must, right? And then I started thinking, well actually it would be in keeping with like the general trend of Jack being like inherently disinterested in the sort of idea of queerness. He's a love interest for Biddy. He's Biddy's type. But that's something that's isolated to their like interpersonal or one-on-one interactions. So like the idea of Jack having any kind of stake in queerness on like any level seems outside of the scope of the interest of this comic, if that makes sense. I don't know. I feel like realistically you'd expect Jack to have more of a reaction to this moment. He's waiting to hear what this kid has to say in answer to the question, what's your type? Presumably, Jack has lived in fear of having somebody ask him that for a really long time. And he's gotten away with not very many people asking him that, presumably, because he seems like he's straight. And he's existing in spaces where he seems like he's straight, and it's presumed within the space that you're straight. So he's kind of safe from questions like this for the most part. But he's watching, like, it's set up two panels before this, that he's watching very closely to see what Biddy is going to say. And then Biddy runs away. And I would really expect or maybe want the comic to like 
give more attention to Jack's reaction to this. But his reaction is this deadpan, like, quip. I think his lack of reaction is, I can read it in two ways, or multiple ways, maybe more than two. I similarly feel, as you do, that surely he must have at least wondered about Biddy and Biddy's sexuality, while also, I would presume, constantly being afraid of what reflects back on him and his sexuality in all capacities, because that's clearly something that he worries about. We see that. So I can read this sort of deadpan quip as a interest, like a kind of interesting and severe immediate repression of whatever his reaction might be. And that's kind of an interesting character note. I don't think it's a character note that gets particularly explored or examined in an interesting way. And that's related to the fact that his access to or identity within the framework of queerness is never really examined. And neither is Biddy's actually, until they become role models for like all gay kids, you know, many strips from now. How they understand themselves in the kind of like landscape of queer identity at Samwell and at large is never really thought about in the text of the comic. I don't really think it's thought about in the extras. I don't really think it's thought about in the author's notes. I'm not sure how much Ngozi has thought about it, to be honest. Maybe a lot, just not in spaces where I am. Maybe not at all. I'm not sure. And I think that this sort of like lack of reaction is also related to the I imagine at this point planned will they won't they tension that arises during year two. Uh, It's not really a will they won't they in sort of classic sitcom style where the characters are in and out of a relationship, but it's a bit will they won't they where these moments of tension happen and then are released, happen and then are released. And I mean, I can only draw from my previous reactions when I first read the the comic. But I remember, as I've said multiple times, like not being sure they were going to get together. And I think the sort of surprise of them getting together is in part because of Jack's lack of reaction, Jack's presumed straightness. And I don't know if that's part of Ngozi's narrative tension building only, if it's also a commentary on Jack as a character, if it's because maybe she like hasn't thought that much about how these characters relate to their own sexualities and what those sexualities mean in a broader sort of social context. Uh, I think it's complicated and I don't know that I know that I can like figure out the answer, but I do feel a little weird about it because I think there would be another way to write Jack where he maybe makes a quip or he maybe makes a, some kind of reaction that isn't, I'm gay too, that isn't a total like shutdown. So I'm looking for this extra and not finding it, but there is an extra where somebody asks Ngozi, does Biddy ever come out to Jack? And Ngozi's answer is basically, Jack probably finds out from somebody else. Ransom and Holster probably mention it to him. I remember that extra also. Yeah, I'm trying to find it. I can't find it. Maybe I'll find it as soon as we stop recording. But what's interesting about it to me is that it feels very dismissive of the idea that Jack would notice or care what Biddy's sexuality is. Which is frustrating from the perspective of, like, what it means that these two guys end up getting together. It's also frustrating because it's like, all right, so let's say Jack is into dudes. Let's, let's, just, let's just go crazy and just say he's into guys. 
he sees this moment happen. Later, somebody mentions to him that Biddy's into dudes, or it's a few days later, and he's aware that Biddy has been set up with a guy for this dance. Is it not as Biddy's captain and or quasi-friend and or compatriot in the LGBT community not incumbent upon Jack to go to Biddy and say something like, it's cool that you're gay. I mean, not in those words, but basically like extend himself to basically like let Biddy know that he empathizes, not even necessarily by outing himself, but just very casually let Biddy know that Biddy's palpable distress was obvious to him and Biddy doesn't have to worry about it. Like, why is it never incumbent upon Jack to extend himself? I guess that's my question. Why is it Biddy's responsibility to come out over and over again, but Jack never has to step outside of his presumed straightness to implicate himself in any of this? Maybe I'm not articulating this well, but like, I think I'm circling an issue here. I have thoughts about this. I I think you've articulated it like in a pretty interesting way. I don't know that my thoughts are all coherent. What I will say is that I find it realistic that someone who is deeply closeted and has had like traumatic experiences in this sport, maybe not directly related to his sexuality, but presumably partially related to his sexuality, I find it like actually reasonable characterization that he wouldn't extend himself. So I think in this moment, not taking the rest of the comic into account, but knowing that Jack is like somewhere in the LGBTQ spectrum, like, well, I guess not LGBTQ spectrum. It actually makes sense to me that he might not reach out. I think that when we kind of like examine the narrative overall and start thinking about what kinds of conversations about identity, sexuality, coming out, et cetera, are being explored, that there's something kind of frustrating um, about the conclusions that the comic draws in what it means to be an ally and also what it means to be in a given community supporting other people in that community who might have similar or different identities than you, but who have something in common um, because you're under this like sort of queer umbrella. And I am really curious about the way that these characters might conceive of their identities outside of each other, which we don't see ever, as we've discussed. And because we don't see that for Biddy either, really. Like we see him a little bit when he is a captain and he, spoilers, he's a captain and he like engages with other sort of like athletes and blah, blah, blah. But that's like way later and it's not very interesting or deep. So mostly we see Biddy's sexuality as it relates to homophobia and fear. And as it relates to making out with Jack Zimmerman, like those are the two kind of like situations in which it gets at all explored. And I think that there's something reductive about that being the exploration of sexuality for me personally, other people might not feel that way. That's totally fine. And I think it has to do with this, ugh, I don't know, this like, how do I say this? It's interesting to me that it's Biddy, who's the character who is drawn in a way that isn't always Uh, let's go with the controversial phrase, straight passing, that always has to put himself out there and put himself in these vulnerable situations. I think it's quite interesting that Jack doesn't have to do that. I think that there's like a sort of then broader question about what it means to be open about the self and who's expected to do it and why. 
I have more thoughts about this, but I'm not articulating them that well, so I'll stop for now. First of all, about the phrase straight passing. Jack is literally straight passing. He's passing a straight in this strip, and he passes a straight for 50% of the comic. Yes, it's a controversial phrase because it implies certain things about how we perceive straightness and therefore how queerness is constructed. However, Jack is being set up with a woman. There's no discussion about whether or not he'd prefer a man. He's just passing as straight. That's how I feel as well. And yet I fought with people on the internet about it. So, you know, I just wanted to note that it's a controversial term with a complicated history. It's being applied specifically here in relation to one specific person who canonically is passing a straight. So I, at least in this instance, let's say that it's, it's functional. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is basically that Jack has the quote-unquote privilege, and I guess we'll talk about this a little bit more probably when we get into the next strip, of being straight passing. He never has to have this moment if he doesn't want to. And he doesn't seem to want to. I guess the sort of subtext or the answer to a lot of the questions that I have been asking in this conversation is basically that because Jack is straight passing and because he is more visibly mask and conformist, the burdens of queerness are like never placed on him by the narrative. He is treated as if he is somehow beyond having to identify or specify a label for himself. He is treated as if like it's too much to ask to expect him to give a couple of thoughtful sentences of affirmation to queer youth who are watching him kiss his boyfriend after he wins the Stanley Cup. It is treated like asking him to vocalize that is a burden that he is above. He is treated as if in that extra where, you know, Ngozi states that Biddy never directly comes out to him, it's treated as if it's like he does not deserve to be burdened with conversations about sexuality in any dimension. And the narrative essentially refrains from leaning into any implication of what queerness should mean to him beyond who he's sleeping with. And this is a really, really thorny conversation because you have perfectly valid arguments on both sides of it where some people think, well, yes, that's expressly it. And some people think, well, that's actually harmful and reductive. And I'm not going to get into it now just because it's a lot. But I think this is an interesting moment because... I think a much stronger story for Jack and Biddy and something that would really root and stabilize and bolster the sort of, you know, coming out acceptance journey that they are on for the first two years of the comic would be if it was drawn from feelings or empathies or affects that were developed in the first half of the comic. But because those aren't, they're not there when you get to these stories about like Jack and Biddy making waves. 
I think this is a really good point to again bring up the difference between like real life queer people and fictional queer people, particularly again because this comic is so lauded for being representative of queer identities in multiple ways. In real life, anyone can feel anything for any reason and you know, maybe or maybe not that's like quote unquote valid depending on the circumstances, but it's fine. People feel different ways about their identities. People might not want to identify. It's cool. I think the thing that's really complicated and what makes this really a hard conversation to have is because this comic is so meaningful to so many people because of the way that it deals with LGBTQ issues. And I certainly don't want to knock that or say that it isn't important to people for good reasons. But I think that we do have to sort of question some of the implicit narratives about queerness and this really complicated thing that I don't, I don't want to necessarily get into here. But I think there's like something happening where with like implications of weird gender roles that get wrapped into the characters of who does like what kind of emotional labor and blah, blah, blah. And like, we don't have to talk about that right now, but I think there's like something weird there that needs examination, a certain set of assumptions maybe or something that we can explore later, but, but that have to do with this idea of like, who's doing the work in this relationship who's doing the work in the narrative? Obviously it's Biddy's story, so Biddy's doing a lot of the work, except maybe he's not, maybe things just happen to him and he like rides them out. It's hard to navigate that. But, but in terms of like, who's carrying the burden of having the sort of like, forgive me for this, but like deviant identity, it's Biddy. Biddy is the fish out of water. Biddy is wearing different colors. Biddy holds himself differently. Biddy talks differently. It's Biddy who's queer. Although there's other characters who then become part of the queer contingent of the comic, there's not that many and only Biddy and Jack get any kind of development and only Biddy's interiority in regards to his sexuality gets any kind of development. And there's like something complicated about the fact that this character who's over and over again coded as like different is the character whose identity is so central to the text and it's not that that isn't a real experience that people have as a member of the community i too felt alienated by being lgbtq etc yes of course that's not that that's not a meaningful thing but because biddy's not real because it's a fictional story and because it's lauded as this representative, important unpacking of problematic things in our society, I think it's just worth asking, what does it mean that this character who is treated over and over again as kind of different, what does it mean that he is the one to bear the burden of coming out and being brave and talking about things, particularly because his relationship to masculinity is complicated. I don't have like a strong answer. I just feel a thorny knot of complicated feelings about it. Well, here's the answer. Um, it's othering. Yeah, it you is. You know, Biddy is effeminate. He, I mean, somewhat effeminate. He is more stereotypically gay. Therefore, he is obviously gay. Therefore, he has to do the labor in multiple senses of self-identifying and representing to both people within the framework of the comic and the audience generally. Jack is a straight man who happens to be dating a guy. I mean, he's obviously not, but that's the way basically he's structured. And he doesn't have to respond to questions about it. He doesn't have to engage with it. 
He doesn't have to vocalize any feelings about it. It doesn't have to impact any aspect of his life at all. And now, obviously, if you break this down, you can make multiple arguments that that's not exactly true. And there are parts of this comic that I could point to where I think it's not true. But ultimately, Jack is treated as a sort of any two guys fan fiction archetype who is pretty much like any other guy on the planet except he happens to like men and Biddy is treated as an other who has to find a way to carve out a space for himself whereas Jack's is a given. Yeah, and and he doesn't even get to carve out a space for himself with other people like him. Like, I think if he had more relationships, I mean, again, this is like not, it's, it's very important that we're talking about fiction here because everybody in the real world is going to inhabit different spaces in different ways, and I'm not trying to like knock that. Um, but in, in context specifically of this as a fictional project, the fact that Biddy is like othered and also does not find other othered people like him, like, Again, speaking as a member of the community, in spaces where I don't feel like I'm one of many, I'm like kind of into figuring out who else is queer who's around. Like this is like a definitely a thing that I have done. I find it really weird for Jack that he like wouldn't apparently care enough to be like, <laughs> or wouldn't, I mean, I think again, you can make the argument that he's like repressing very heavily, but I just find it like curious that he wouldn't seem to want to know whether or not this character he probably suspects is gay is gay. And I find it really part of that sort of othering pattern that his whole arc is about his identity, but his identity is only ever defined in relationship to like this man he's gonna fall in love with really. Like we don't really see him explore any other aspects of what that means. And it's frustrating in part, I don't think I would be so frustrated except that like for the past, you know, however many years people have been telling me this is the best thing to happen to gay comics. And I'm like, excuse me, there have been other gay comics. You could make the argument that it's a result of the sort of conformity-making, toxic masculine hockey machine that processes Jack into somebody who cannot express or audit his own feelings on this topic, and therefore he doesn't. I think metatextually within the story, it's a very reasonable expectation to get to that reading. The reason why it's difficult for me to give credit to the comic for that re reading is because the comic actually never makes that reading and never deals with it. There's no fallout or any sort of moment at which Jack has to grapple with the circumstances of how his life experiences have emotionally neutered him to the point where he does not seem to have any empathy to express to somebody who he is watching go through what Biddy is going through in this particular strip. Not that like anything particularly bad is happening to Biddy in this strip, but like he sort of like freaks out at the end and like runs off. And Jack knows that he's lying and knows that he's covering for something. And I think this comic pays a price for not dealing with these things because two and three years down the road from this, it's going to be dealing in supposedly the effects of the system that produces these reactions, but it doesn't deal with that. So that's what's frustrating. In terms of Biddy getting involved with like basically other queer people, 
This is the strip where he says that he wanted to go to Samwell specifically because U.S. News and World Report ranked it number one for LGBT stuff. A couple notes on that. Number one, as Ngozi does say in the blog post, U.S. News and World Report does not rank LGBT friendly schools. So they rank, if you're not familiar with like U.S. News and World Report, they are sort of the number one spot for rankings of how good colleges are in the U.S. based on, you know, major research institutions and then liberal arts colleges are a separate list and then regional schools are a separate list and they do all sorts of different breakdowns. You can look at it by region, you can look at it public versus private, and so on and so forth. Is it really worth looking at? Not really. It can tell you general trends, like if a school has been in the top 20 for the past 15 years, safe to say it's like a pretty good school, but they're ultimately mostly meaningless. They have a lot to do with media perceptions of colleges and a lot of criteria that don't actually matter once you're actually going to the school. Also, they have a lot of like, I, let me put it this way. The difference between number one and number two on a US News and World Report list is like negligible. So in terms of Biddy having to go to like the number one LGBT college, like the distinction between number one, number two, number 10, number 50 is honestly probably like basically nothing. Um, by 2013, which is the year that Biddy is enrolling in college, I would probably estimate that it's far easier to make a list of like the handful of like LGBT unfriendly schools in the US than it would be to make a list of which are the most friendly. I feel like maybe in, you know, previous decades, this was different. Different schools probably had different policies, but you're gonna be really hard pressed to find any higher education institution in America that doesn't have like some visible LGBT community like on the campus. It's further ridiculous to think that Biddy had to go to the gay-friendliest college in all of America so that he can ends up, end up doing what he does in this comic, which is marrying a hockey player who's the first guy he ever had sex with. Well, I hope you're laughing because I make a good point. Anyway, that's my rant about this. It's so fucking naive of Biddy. And here's the thing, I kind of don't blame him. Cause it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure most people who are applying to college have very few resources. My guess is the public high school that he goes to in Georgia does not have a lot of critical thinking skills in its, you know, I don't know, college application team or whatever. But yeah, just completely useless, completely useless also complicates the narrative. So basically he was like, okay, I need to go to the number one gay-friendly college in all of America. Okay, it seems like they have a D1 hockey team. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna join a local co-ed hockey team and get extremely good at Spinorama. And I'm gonna send them a tape of me playing and maybe they'll recruit me. I won't try to be a really good student 
or write a really good essay, it would be easier for me to be recruited onto an NCAA D1 hockey team. Other narrative is that he's so good at Spinorama that he got more than one offer and he chose Samwell because it was the number one gay university, which maybe is possible. I don't know. It's, it's one of those hand wavy things that's like, it's fine. But I agree. If there were more characterization that I could draw from, I would be like, oh, Biddy, you know, like, didn't know what his resources and options were. And so he went here and then like learned about, I don't know, whatever he could learn about, which he doesn't in this comic. But, you know, I don't know. I just think the whole thing feels very clumsy and that's okay. Like you don't have to write a perfect narrative by any means. My frustration again is related to the way people talk about it, I think, more than the comic itself, which is not perfect, but it's fine until it becomes terrible. So then there's this, and you touched on this. So he wanted to go to the gay-friendliest college in all of America so that he could meet literally three gay people the entire time he was in college. His team captain, who he gets married to, one guy who he accidentally finds out is gay, and then that guy doesn't even want anything to do with him, and then another team captain who has a girlfriend who appears in two strips. It just seems like a lot for very little. I wonder whether there was ever a plan of Biddy meeting other people or whether it was supposed to be one of those things where like the narrative doesn't go into it because it's not about the sort of like hockey team circle that the comic circles around, but it's supposed to be implied that Biddy, at first that Biddy is meeting other queer people, but then like he just never actually does. I don't know. Well, okay. So first of all, I think part of it is that like it's outside of the framework of like what's happening on Samwell men's hockey. So it's not part of the comic. But the other thing is that the way that gayness is structured, and a lot of it is in this strip, this particular strip, the closet story number one, is that it has nothing to do with a culture or a community or any kind of like larger relation to anything other than like yourself and your own personal life and your self-knowledge. Biddy structures this within his narrative here about how he didn't have a lot of room to be himself. So he starts out by saying, I'm from small town Georgia and it's the South and my dad's the coach of the hockey team. So first of all, this is where the threat of homophobia starts to become an aspect of the comic. We don't know anything about Biddy being gay before this. I mean, obviously me and you know, because we've been in this fandom, so we know what the deal is, but like, I'm sure people started guessing, but like, no, it it hasn't actually come up before. So Biddy expressly states that he is afraid of having been known to be gay prior to this. That's what homophobia is. Like, so homophobia is a functional aspect of this comic. I haven't heard this argument for like a couple years now, but there has been discourse about whether or not there is actually homophobia present in the comic. Like, there is. It's right here. Biddy is like stating it to the reader. So that's that. At the same time, the things he's saying he's afraid of are never like activated or actualized within the comic to the point where it starts to seem like maybe Biddy's fear of these things was displaced. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I also think there's something problematic here about his view of the South. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> the, way that we, I just want to br- 
briefly talk about the way that we talk about homophobia in this fandom. Again, it's also been a couple of years and like, I'm trying not to have discourse anymore because I'm tired and I can't do it. But I just, for me, when I first read this comic back in the day, long ago, I did not know that homophobia would magically be solved through like Jack and Biddy touching each other's butts or whatever. And so every time the specter of homophobia raised its head during these first strips, it felt real. There was a very real possibility, especially given the fact that like there's some casual homophobia being thrown around. I mean, not really, but being sort of like touched on up until this point with implications through chirps mostly and through insults. Like that is much more casual than it would be on an actual hockey team, but it's real, it's in the text. And so Biddy's fear about coming out to these like bros who are trying to set him up with a, with a lady who bakes felt very real. But when that fear of homophobia is not met, it is gratifying. It feels exciting and different. As the fear of homophobia continues and is never actually met with any real homophobia, it makes Biddy look like a crazy person. And that is infuriating. There's something really complicated about the suggestion that homophobia doesn't exist in this comic when literally the only reason that the comic has a plot at all is the specter of homophobia. Like nothing that the characters do would fucking matter if homophobia did not exist in the world. It, who would fucking care about Jack and Biddy kissing after the Stanley Cup if the fact that it's like new and different and hadn't happened before because of homophobia, the fact that the comic does not engage with it meaningfully in the text doesn't mean that it's not part of the story. And again, I will just sort of like touch on the fact that the whole comic is constantly borrowing from the real world and from genres in order to tell its story rather than telling a story in and of itself. And without real world homophobia that kills people, this comic wouldn't fucking exist. Thank you. Not all homophobia kills people, just some homophobia. There are different kinds of homophobia. We've talked a lot about racism lately and about how racism is an institutional thing where to a certain extent, it's less about people's individual beliefs that they intellectually hold in their own brains and more about how a system is constructed. Homophobia works in a not dissimilar way. That's what I'll throw in here. Exactly. Again, I'm not trying to make a complicated or nuanced argument about what homophobia is, and I know that I'm being exaggerated in the way that I'm talking, but I just think it's important to remember that the consequences of homophobia are very real, and to not treat them as though they are real negates the reason that this comic has a plot. There's a tension there. The other thing I will say about the South, which I know that you want to talk a little bit more about, is that I can't talk too much about the South. I don't have a lot of experience being in the South. But the Northeast, I mentioned this before, I'll say it again, it is not a utopia free of homophobia. It is different because different places have different cultural aspects appear differently. And just as like a town over here might be different than a town over there, a region over here is going to be different than a region over there. But it's not like the Northeast is magically free of homophobia or anything else. So it's fine if that's Biddy's narrative, I guess. It would be fine if it were a real person's narrative about like, I left this town, I went here, I felt better. That's fine. In the fiction, we have to sort of again examine like what's being, what, what implications are being suggested through the fiction. And the idea that like Massachusetts doesn't have homophobia 
or something is crazy. Obviously, some parts have different amounts of institutional and personal homophobia. It was one of the first states that allowed gay marriage. That's important. But it's not like homophobic people don't exist in Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, this is a big, complicated topic. I think a few things that are important to point out are, number one, big cities in the North and the South are more like each other than big cities and small towns in the South. So Biddy's point about, I'm from small town Georgia. We had somebody respond to our comments about why couldn't Biddy just go to college in the South and make the point about what it means to be from small town Georgia and being known and how if he was at say UGA, the community distance between where he was and where his family was would be too small. I take that point and I think that was a good thing to bring up. That said, the South is not a uniform entity any more than anywhere else is. I am also from a blue state, a large metropolis, where my experience in that metropolis is vastly different from the experience of mostly everybody else living in that state. My state has a lot of institutional protections for gay people. That's because we have a large city that mainly controls both houses of the legislature in the state, and there's also a Democrat governor, and they can do whatever they want to. That's not necessarily in keeping with the attitude that you'll find throughout most of the state. These are semantics of sort of like American life that I don't think we're here to break down, but I think Biddy and or the author are giving the South a bit of a reductive reading here. I think he could have just said, I'm from small town Georgia and my dad's the coach of the football team. And that would have said a lot more than just interjecting and it's the South. I was living in the South. I was living in Georgia at the time when this comic was published. And I was having a not very straight personal experience. So like, I'm not saying that I don't think Biddy as, you know, he's not a real person, but let's just for the sake of discussing it, presume that Biddy has his own feelings and agency within the framework of the story. I'm not saying Biddy doesn't deserve to feel how he feels, but I think he is throwing the baby out with the bathwater a bit on what types of life it is possible to have in an entire region of the country. That's what I'm getting at. Having said all of that, I don't think Biddy is the type of person who is necessarily thinking about the structural or the policy or the judicial level on which LGBT protections happen. I think he is mostly thinking about how do I envision my own daily life experience? And I think he's thinking about that because he says, I didn't have a lot of room to be myself. And I have thought a lot about that line. That line is kind of the thing that caught me up in this particular strip. Because I want to ask Biddy, what do you mean by that? Were you somehow altering your behavior or concealing your interests? Because it doesn't seem like he was, actually. I can think of, you know, there is the fact that he 
stopped figure skating and started playing hockey, but I feel like it might be buried in some extras post that the reason why he did that was because they moved towns and he therefore couldn't continue with his figure skating coach. So I don't think he stopped figure skating because it seemed gay. I think he stopped figure skating because they relocated. I remember that too. So like... I mean, I don't know, God knows where you'd find that anymore. This, the paratexts are such a fucking mess. But like, what does he mean when he says he didn't have a lot of room to be himself? He does not seem as though he has been not indulging in his interests. When you see a shot in year four of his childhood bedroom, it's full of like Beyonce paraphernalia and figure skating medals and cookbooks and things. It seems like whoever Biddy was going to be, he was being it. And I'm not saying this to second guess, like, the feeling of being surrounded by, like, systemic homophobia, which I'm sure was part of his experience. But I believe the comic is constructing the particular fact of being out as an end in and of itself, as a matter of, like, personal truth and openness but it never follows up on what that means in like a larger infrastructural or community-based fabric and that's the thing that I think we'll end up talking a lot about in the next episode when Biddy actually comes out Like, what is the value of being out? Just, like, in and of itself. Like, what are you hoping? Like, what is it that you're going to get out of this? It would be very easy for him to just answer Ransom and Holster's question with, yeah, I don't know, I'm open to whatever. And then they set him up with some girl, and then he just goes home and doesn't have sex with her, which is something that Jack does. So, like, he could very easily just, like go with the flow, not even address it. The way that you said that made me suddenly realize, maybe other people have said this, but I'll say it as well. The way the comic sets up coming out is as a necessary coming of age milestone, as opposed to what it is, which is a disclosing of personal information that you may or may not do at any point in your life based on circumstance. And the fact that it's set up as a goal that you do once, or twice on national TV, or three times, I guess three times in in the course of the comic with like increasing audience is really curious when I compare it to the actual experience of coming out for people I know and for me. I think they're very different things. Yeah, I mean, it's something that varies from person to person. Of course. Obviously, every individual person needs to figure out what the value of this is for themselves, but it's also a larger universal phenomenon that has a meaning as a gesture in and of itself. So it's worth talking out both ways. And we'll talk about this next episode. I'll get more into it, but I have gone back and counted something like 12 different cases of coming out within the comic. So lots of opportunities to get into this, including in relation to the next strip. But I think for me, this is where talking about Biddy as a character versus Ngozian as an author starts to become like necessary to like deal with a little. Because it's like, 
is this idea that he can't be himself in the South being presented as like an idea that Biddy holds as a character? Or is it more so something that the comic is communicating to the reader? I think there are implications about who the reader is. Presumably there are gay readers in the South. Like, again, I wasn't reading the comic at this time, but like when this comic was being published, like I was living part of my life in Georgia. So like, what would I have made if I was reading this thing in Georgia, like having whatever experiences I was having? I don't think the comic is thinking about it that way. I don't think it's giving general attitudes without really like indexing like how those things are going to be received. We also see very little of Georgia in the comic and it's consistently being positioned as this place that Biddy has gotten away from or escaped. It's not that I'm saying that like Biddy's view is invalid. Like I'm pretty sure that he is responding to like actual things that he has felt and experienced. Like I'm sure his perception of things is not coming from nowhere. At the same time, like, because he's only one character and he's really like the only person speaking to this and he's essentially a mouthpiece for an author who is behind the scenes here, we're getting like a really flattened view of like a pretty diverse region. And I will make the point that like Atlanta, which is a city that is like 40 miles away from where Biddy lives. He's from the larger Atlanta metropolitan region. Like obviously relatively on the outskirts of it, he is from a small town, but like not too far from him is like one of the national epicenters of gay life. Also, that's not even the only place in the South. Like, New Orleans is super gay. Charleston is pretty gay. There are a lot of other big cities that I imagine also have fairly sizable queer communities. I think we've also been kind of in real time in, in you know, early summer 2020, talking a lot about what is the South. And I think it's really important to remember that the South is a large, diverse, multicultural re region that is unified by certain political and cultural trends that nevertheless do not hold true across all parts, all communities. And it must sound like I really have a boner for the South here, but I think this very much relates to how this particular comic, it's selling its argument about its main character's personal journey. And the more I think about it, the more I just think it's not doing a very careful job of that. I think that's what bothers me about that coming of age sense. It's not that coming out can't be a coming of age experience, it certainly is, I would say, actually, probably for many people who do that at an early part of their life when they are indeed like coming of age. I just feel complicated again, because as you've said, it's hard to tell what is being held true by this character and what is being held as true by the narrative and the author. They're different. They're related, but they're different. And just because someone experiences coming out in a particular way doesn't mean that that's like the only way to experience it. I don't know anything about Ngozi's identity and I don't wish to speculate. So I can't comment on like her experiences. I just don't have any clue. 
I think what frustrates me about this kind of like commentary on coming out as a coming of age experience for which it is necessary to leave one's home or whatever, right? Like part of the sort of like gay hero's journey or whatever. Um, <laughs> I feel like what I find frustrating about this is not that it can't be true for some people, but that it's not the only truth. And in a comic that is like soft gay boys falling in love as representation for the whole community or whatever, like over and over again, stories about gay people that are not by gay people treat coming out in this way. It's frustrating to see another iteration of a story in which coming out is treated in a non-complex way as the culmination of someone's personal journey and sort of self-actualization which it can be, but it's also other things. And I don't think that the, the story like really deals with that at all. Um, especially because there, there's at least one character, a mysterious shadow with a cowlick, so on and so forth, who we know for a fact is not straight, but whose sexuality is never explored and who, in, who actually deals with homophobia uh, later, like after other characters have stopped dealing with it. So there's like something complicated happening there where coming out becomes this narrative arc of maturity or something, which we should talk more about, maybe not in this episode, but um, I'm just thinking out loud. But I find that troubling. Well, I guess my point, which I'll kind of wrap around as we conclude here, is essentially like, for what purpose is coming out for Biddy, both you know, for him on a character level and like within the story of the comic. And it seems like the way it's being constructed is that it has to do with like being his own self and being like, you know, an earnest forthright person who is true to whatever self-actualized version of Biddy actually exists. And that really bothers me. Because it's like, what are you doing with this? Are you connecting with other people? Are you living your life in accordance with some system other than heteronormativity? Uh, certainly not. Are you paying your good fortune forward in some sort of altruistic sense? Are you doing some sort of activist work? Are you developing like, you know, a keener understanding of the way that systems regulate people's lives? Do you understand this on some sort of policy level? On and on and on, the answer is basically no. The only reason why it matters to Biddy to be out is because he has internalized an idea that to be his authentic self, whatever that means, he has to be out. And um, I'm not saying I think that this comic should have dealt with like policy level LGBT rights matters. I think that would have been a really boring story. But at a certain point, it's worth asking, what is the value of this to Biddy? And I just think the answer is basically like, you know, some sort of watered down thing about personal truth that when push comes to shove has no greater meaning than a very banal level who I am as a person, that doesn't really matter. I think that that reading of Biddy's character is actually potentially interesting. Like that's certainly, that sort of self-absorption is something that I am curious about. 
but that's not the reading that I think is common. And it's not a reading that the comic engages with at all, like the consequences of being, being self-absorbed to that degree. Well, if you go down to the end of year four, he's being fucking interviewed as like, you know, a figure of national media significance for his bravery in being the first out NCAA captain. And it's like, okay. But homophobia doesn't exist, so it doesn't matter that he's the first out NCAA captain, right? Come on. Oh, man. Listen, this is what I mean when I say I think this this conversation is going to sort of naturally roll into the next episode. What is that? Where are we going? Oh, boy. Well, we're going to the closet story, Roman numeral two. Yeah, so 1.14, closet story two. This is the end of the semester, the first semester of the comic. However, we have a little coda because in the, in the year one Kickstarter, we get an extra comic that's 14.5. So we are going to extend the semester a little to cover that comic as well. But this is basically the first part of the wrap up of the first semester as it was presented online. And then we'll have finished up the first semester of Check, Please. Seven more to go. And they're all so good. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have a lot to talk about. Can't promise us to quality. Oh my God. I am, I'm like half excited, half really worried about what I'm going to end up saying. Because when Biddy starts actually coming out, it brings up a lot of like really fraught feelings that I have about this topic, up to and including, do I even deserve to have an opinion about this topic? So we'll just, I'm sure it's going to be a big mess. And I'm really pumped because this is the kind of shit that I live for. Breaking down, like, does it even matter if you come out? Probably not is the thing. Uh, I also have exceedingly complicated feelings about this topic. Um, and uh, I'm sure I'll say something that's horrible to somebody. So get ready for that. Well, I just want to say that I think at this point, if anybody is hate listening to our podcast, God bless them. Bless them. Truly, truly, truly. All right. So I'm been... honored and privileged to be hated. That's what I, that's what I say. <sighs> truly. Um, I'm Secret OMG. And if you want to know more about me vis-a-vis check, please, you can visit me at familiar, F-A-M-I-L-L. Wait, no, back up. If you want to know more about me, you can visit me at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R at Tumblr. And my handle on um, AO3 is familiar. How about you? You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com uh, or uh, on AO3, which I always forget to add, um, as tomato underscore greens. And you can find us and our podcast, uh, you probably know this already, but at checkdispleased.tumblr.com. And you can also find us on Spotify. And soon, hopefully, we will also be on uh, Apple Podcasts because I'll get my act together. Cool. Well, this has been a goddamn delight. It always is. What a bad comic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Goodbye. Bye. Oh, shit.